Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, hey, welcome to Time Change Sunday. All right, you are the few, the proud, the Marines of church goers. So, all right, give yourself a hand for that. All right. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about time change, and uh, so I began to kind of research a little bit about, okay, why in the world do we do this to ourselves? And here's what I've found out. I think that it is a government conspiracy against all people with small children. Uh, because here's the truth, is that those little ones uh, that you love so dearly, um, and maybe your husband, they don't adjust with the time change. Never, do they? Okay, I'm the only one. Great. All right, so this is going to be good. All right, that's a great start. Uh, you know what's interesting is that uh, when I was thinking through uh, time change, then it kind of redirected my research toward, okay, well, who even keeps up with time in the first place? All right, and I mean, who is even watching after this? Like, where do we get time? I mean, who, who's in charge of this deal? And you know what I found out? Nobody really knows. I mean, nobody really knows how time is kept. Here's what we do know. All right? We didn't really start paying attention to time until October of 1840. You know why? Because of the railroad system. And so conductors and the people keeping uh, the trains on time, they started keeping up and watching after time. But here was the issue. The time was only relative to the observer. And so wherever their position in relation to the sun, that was the time. Well, guess what? The sun is different for different people in different places. And so guess what we figured out? The system doesn't really work that well, okay? If it's relative to the observer, it doesn't work. And so then this is what happened. Uh, the uh, idea of the atomic clock was created in 19. 55. And here's a picture of what Al-Biruni, uh, who was a Persian astronomer, came up with. He created this illustration to understand time better based on the phases of the moon in relation to the Earth's rotation. All right. But you know what we figured out? That the Earth rotates not the same every time. Guess what? It's inconsistent in how it rotates. And so guess what we figured out with this? Does it work all that well? And so then we came up with a different system. It's called the cesium. All right, this came out um, later in 1967. And essentially the cesium is this. The cesium is heated until it vaporizes into a beam of atoms Okay, which vibrate precisely 9,192,631,770 times per second. That's pretty exact, don't you think? Except it's not. Okay, so here's what happened. We figured out again, uh, well, we still have an issue. Okay, and so the cesium was great, but we still have an issue. And so then this idea in 1972 came out to have leap seconds. Y'all ever heard of that? Okay, so here's basically what happened. They figured out, hey, we're off a little bit. Let's just add a second here and there. That's pretty that's pretty astounding, right? And so this is what happened in 2012. I don't know if you remember this or not, but the airline system almost completely shut down because of a leap second. It threw the whole system off, all right? Al Gore and the internet that he came up with was absolutely uh, destroyed in 2012 almost. But here's what uh, we figured out that leap seconds only added a little bit of confusion. But here's the truth, okay? This is just a little bit of understanding into the intricacies of time. The, the absolutes of time, which no man can really fully understand. 
And so as you continue to research and you look, you're like, okay, well, this is just nothing but confusion and nonsense. We just keep guessing and hoping that we're on time. So here's, here's your excuse for the future as you are late to church. Well, guess what? Well, how do you know what time it is? You know what I mean? We're all just guessing in this thing together. But how many of you, just think about the perfection of timing. Think about that just for a moment. The perfection of timing. When I think about the perfection of timing, most of you spiritual people are probably thinking of different stories of creation, how God perfectly in his perfect timing design. I think about Randy Johnson, all right? Anybody know who Randy Johnson is? He is one of the best uh, pitchers uh, of all time. He's a Hall of Famer. But in 2001, Randy Johnson proved against all odds, all right? And so if there are small children in the room, make sure you, you guard their eyes because this next image is very graphic, and I don't want you to be disturbed by it. But this is what happened in 2001 with Randy Johnson. This is an exploding bird, all right? You're talking about perfect timing. Randy Johnson threw the baseball, and it hit a bird, Guys, I know that we've probably heard this story, but this is crazy. This is absolutely uh, astonishing because the odds of of Randy Johnson throwing the pitch, the fact that they called a fastball is not really against odds because that's what he did, okay? But uh, here's the deal. The, the, The bird would fly across the path of the exact path of the baseball at the exact time that it was crossing this location and the intersection was exactly perfect for that bird that was just this helpless poor little bird that was going to feed, trying to find worms, trying to get this family fed. And, and then boom, all of a sudden it's just destroyed right there in thin air. Think about the timing of that. You know what the odds are for that? I did the map. No, I didn't. I looked it up. 84 million to one. Now, that, that's crazy. That is crazy, right? But guess what? You know what else is crazy? The, the fact that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that he did. That's even greater odds. That's even uh, uh, bigger than that. You know what it is? You know what the odds of Jesus to fulfill? Eight prophecies. Just eight prophecies. You know what that is? It's like, I can't remember. And I didn't write it down, so now you're testing me in front of everyone. Good job. It's a hundred million billion. That's a real number. Okay, I looked it up. All right, a hundred million billion to one. All right, so those are the odds of just Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies. You know what those odds are? Those odds are if you were to take a couple nickels, (laughs) a lot of nickels, and and spread them across the entire state of Texas two feet deep, okay, two feet deep, for you to mark one nickel and then for someone to go and retrieve that one nickel, that is the odds of Jesus for a man to fulfill just a prophecies. And so as, as we are looking ahead, we are starting this series, Passion Week, right? And, and we see prophecies fulfilled. We see the things that are talked about in the Old Testament come to full fruition. We see this taking place here in Mark chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to, to Mark chapter 11. But, but I want you to think about this, the, the intricacies of God's perfect timing, Because not anything happened apart from God allowing it to happen. This is God's perfect timing. And as you look at uh, the the series of Passion Week, the series of events leading up to the crucifixion, every event was marked and done according to God's perfect design. And this is exactly what we are studying because today we are going to see the very first step in, God, uh, in Jesus' final week uh, before the crucifixion. And Mark is kind of a unique book because the gospel of Mark is, is the shortest of all the gospels, but is known just as much for what is in the text as what is left out of the text. 
This is what I mean by that. There is no miraculous birth narrative in the Gospel of Mark. There's no childhood at Nazareth. There's no account for the visit to the temple. No sermon on the mount. There uh, are very few parables in the Gospel of Mark. But what we do find in the Gospel of Mark is that a third of the book is given toward the narrative and the account of Passion Week. Some have referred to Mark's Gospel as a passion narrative with a prolonged introduction. So that's how much attention Mark gives to Passion Week. And so let's read together, starting in chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Verse 7 says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. All right, so if you were to follow the steps of Jesus, you would, you would have journeyed from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth through all of Galilee into Capernaum Gennesaret, you would have gone to Gentile areas of, of Tyre and Sidon, to Magadan and to Caesarea Philippi, to Jericho, to Judea. And now we see in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus enters the holy city during Passover week. During this Passover week, this is when Jesus enters the holy city. And Mark 11 begins the last week of Jesus's life before the crucifixion. This was the week, by the way, that all of creation was waiting for and had been waiting for. We see the week beginning with Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem uh, during this Passover where the Jewish people are celebrating the fact that, that, that God sent Moses. He came to Egypt to retrieve God's people to take them to the promised land. They took them out of the bondage and captivity of the Egyptians. And so they are celebrating this moment. They are celebrating the fact that, that God provided. And, and when, when Egypt was was uh, given death to the firstborn males. And God said, spread the blood over your doorpost and I will pass over your house. And so they are celebrating these events during Passover week. And by the way, this is the day, the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is the day of Passover week uh, that they are, uh, the people there, are selecting their lamb that would be uh, slain for their atonement and sin. And so this is what we see. This is an event, uh, the, pa uh, excuse me, the triumphal entry and the feeding of the 5,000. These are the only two events that are found in all four Gospels. Hence the importance. It emphasizes the importance of this event. We see it in Matthew chapter 21. We see it here in uh, Mark chapter 11. We see it in Luke chapter 19. And then we see it in John chapter 12. And the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world is now entering the gates of Jerusalem to prepare to be slain slain in space and time. And this is what we see about this lamb. The first thing we see from Paul is that the one true king, this is what we have, this is what we're talking about. The one true king is in control. 
This is what we see. The one true king is in control because this is what we are celebrating. The king has come. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. The king has finally come. He has finally arrived. And the first thing that we see about him is this, that he's in control. Listen to Mark chapter 11. It says, now they drew near to Jerusalem. Uh, to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And basically, what does he say? He says, go and get this colt. Go and get this donkey. Go into the village in front of you and immediately enter it, and you will find what? A colt tied up on which no one has ever sat. If you think back through me, uh, through uh, some passages uh, with me, uh, remember that whenever Jesus did miracles... Okay, when, whenever you saw healing, whenever you saw specific events from Jesus over and over again, he would tell those whom he healed, do not tell anyone else. He says, don't, don't tell anybody. This is what he says in, in Matthew chapter 9. He just uh, finishes, he's, he healed two blind men there in, in Matthew chapter 9. And then he tells them, he says, Jesus sternly, Okay, not passively, but Jesus sternly warned them after their eyes were open. He said, see that no one knows about it. See that no one knows about it. Why is that? Because Jesus is saying the timing has not yet come. And remember, the timing of the Lord is absolutely perfect. It is not by chance. It is not by coincidence. But rather, it is in, within the perfect design of the one who is in control. He was, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is ministering to the people in Bethsaida. And this is what he, he, he heals a blind man there. He heals a blind man. He says, do not, do not even enter the village do not even enter the village. As Jesus was going with his disciples in Mark chapter 8, uh, right after he heals this guy, he tells them, hey, don't even go in the village. Don't, don't even talk about this. All right? Don't even go back. Don't talk about it. Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, he says that he went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, he says this, he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they begin to answer him. He's like, well, some people say that, that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're the prophet Elijah and, and, or, or one of the other prophets. This is, what, this is what people are saying. And then Jesus turns the attention. He says, yeah, 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 okay. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him. He says, you're the Christ. He, he said, you're the son of the living God. You are the Christ. And what does Jesus say? He says that he strictly charged them to do what? Tell no one about me. Tell no one. Why? Because the time is not yet here. The time has not yet come for my full identity to be revealed. The time has not yet come for you to fully, for the people to fully understand that I am their one true king who has come to rescue them. He says, not yet, but there's a shift that takes place. In Matthew chapter 20, we see again that Jesus, uh, again, he heals two blind men. And afterward, guess what? No such charge has been given to stay silent. He doesn't give them a charge again to stay silent about it. And the reason is because now is the time. This is one chapter before the Passover week in the account of Matthew. This is one chapter before. And basically what Jesus is saying, now is the time. Okay, now it is happening. It is here what you have been waiting for is here. What you have been longing for is here. Everything that you have hoped for is here. And so he doesn't tell them to stay silent any longer. And the, this is protection of Jesus' identity to a degree to, to control the events that are happening. His timing is perfect. It is not by coincidence. And the events, every detail... Every event leading up to this 
all of creation from the moment of Genesis 3, chapter 15, when we have the very first messianic promise, when he says, hey, when God promises, hey, guess what, Satan, one day you are going to be destroyed. You may bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That promise was given in Genesis 3, 15. And guess what? From that point, all of creation, all of God's people have been moaning. They've been groaning. They've been waiting in anticipation for this king to finally arrive and the beginning is right now this is the triumphal entry because not just some some casual walk riding on a donkey this is a statement that Jesus is making and the first is that he is in control and how we see that is through three different ways that he's in control the first way is this Jesus displays his control in his omniscience all right, this means that, that Jesus is all-knowing. He is the all-knowing God. Jesus knows all. He sees all. He knew what, what would lie ahead of his disciples. He knew in Matthew chapter 14 that he was sending his disciples off into the middle of the storm. He knew in Mark chapter 4 that they were going to be caught in the middle of a storm. He knew these events that were taking place. He knows because he is God. He is the expression of God himself. He has full deity. He is fully man, but yet he is fully God. He has the full deity of the holy God. And he's saying, I know all of these things. He displays this through omniscience and he knows all. Nothing is hidden away from his eternal knowledge. And guess what? That means for you personally, nothing in your life is hidden from Jesus himself. Nothing. This should cause fear and excitement. This, this should cause us to fear God, but have courage in God. This should cause us to fear God because he knows the depth of your heart. He knows the depth of my sinfulness but we can have courage because he knows our circumstance. We can have courage because he knows what you're walking through. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows you so well that he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you intimately and he wants to continue that relationship with you. No sin struggle, no crisis, no decision can you make apart from the omniscience of God. That gives us courage and fear he sees where we cannot see this gives us courage we can trust in him guess what colossians 2 3 says that in jesus christ um, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus, these things are hidden. He knows all things. And this is why he can say to us in, in Matthew chapter 11, he says that, that you can come to me. You, you can come to me. Jesus is an invitation to us. He gives an invitation that we can come to him because all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Why? He's saying, take my yoke upon you and do what? Learn from me. Learn from me. Also, Jesus displays that he is in control uh, as our creator. This is, this is what we see from him. Jesus rules over all creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the charge from God to Adam that, that you are to subdue the earth. You are to control, you are to subdue all of creation. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing as the perfected Adam, as the new Adam, according to Paul in the book of Romans. This is the new Adam. That guess what? That, that this Adam can actually subdue the earth. This is why Jesus can speak silence over the seas. He can cause the mountains to roar. He can call the mountains to tremble and shake. He can cause all of creation to speak on his behalf. He can cause the rocks to speak on, on behalf of him if the people are silent. He can do these things because why? He is the creator. And guess what? The creation does nothing apart from the creator knowing and allowing it to take place. You feel good about that? That should give us a little bit of courage in our step. It should put a fresh pep in our step. This is what Jesus does. And so when, he's, when it says, uh, hey, bring me a colt, 
Okay, not even a full-size, mature donkey. And let's face it, donkeys are morons in the first place. But he says, bring me a donkey. Don't even bring me a mature one. It's almost like, I know this isn't Jesus' motive. I know it's not his attitude. Uh, but I would, be a, I would be a terrible Jesus because I would be like, hey, watch this, all right? Uh, but this is what Jesus does. It's almost like he said, hey, not just bring me a donkey, but, but bring me one that's not even tame. Bring me one that's not even broken. And in fact, bring me a baby that's immature, that's never been ridden. You know why? Because the creation knows his creator. Even in this act of humility, even in this act, here we see that, that God, Jesus, is in control because he displays this as our creator. And they brought the cult to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And guess what happened? Everything was fine. Look, let's be honest. I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse before, but guess what? The ones that are not broken, they don't really like it when you get on their back, all right? They will kick you off. They will buck you off. They will bite you. They will, they will not take uh, anything well, all right? I remember one time I was... Uh, I, growing up, I worked on a horse farm, okay? I know that that's easy to believe about me, um, but I don't know why you laughed at that. It's hurtful. Um, but I grew up working on a horse farm all through high school, and there were a couple of trusted horses, and then there were a couple of not-so-much-trusted horses. One of those untrusted horses, his name was Music, all right? And Music sounds delightful, right? Like the city in Nashville. It sounds fun and inviting. Well, guess what? It was Satan in the spawn of a horse. But uh, my buddy Tyler, who worked with me, he said, hey, man, I bet you won't saddle that, that one and ride it. And me and my ignorance, were, I was like, okay, I mean, yeah, great, let's do it. And so we saddled up Two horses, one of them music. I got on music. And, uh, and so I have seen people ride, and I have ridden three or four times. And so I was an expert, right? Okay. That's, look where it gets me. Okay. Uh, and so all I've seen really, man, I've always wanted to, to just ride just so free through the pasture and just take off running. And so I did what every high school boy would ever do if he gets on a horse dreaming of a Westerner that he's watched once. And I kicked that horse. You know what happened to music? Nothing. He was fine. But I was on a death ride for about 300 yards. And I'm just hanging on for dear life. As soon as I kicked that horse, boy, he took off. And music was running through the pasture, having the time of his life. And I'm sitting here. I may have soiled myself. I don't really know. It's all too fuzzy, you know, from here. But uh, here's what happened. That horse didn't like it very much. No matter what I was trying to command it to do, guess what? It would do the opposite. I was saying, whoa, and it was saying, giddy up. I was saying, turn, and he was saying, no. And I was just in a ride of my life. And so I learned my lesson, all right? But here's Jesus. Jesus gets on this untamed cult, this immature, young donkey, and he is able to ride perfect, perfectly through the streets of Jerusalem. Because he is the creator who can subdue his creation. This is what was happening. And then the last thing that we see is that we know that God is in control because he displays himself as Lord. He is in, Jesus displays his control as Lord. This is what happens. He says to his disciples, he said, look, you just tell them that the Lord has need of it. The Lord, you know that word? Lord right there means, it means supreme authority. That's a Greek word, uh, kuthios, right? It's spelled like kyrios, but it's not cheerios. It's kuthios, all right? Kuthios, you know what this means? This means that he is above all else. And he tells his disciples in a very clear way in this moment, he says that you tell him the one who is over all of creation, the one who can subdue creation, the one that has all control over all things. That is the one who has asked for this cult. So that's what they do. And they go. And guess what? When they told the people, they let them go. They let them take it. And church, if Jesus is omniscient, 
knowing all things. And Jesus is the creator, subduing all creation. And Jesus is the Lord ruling over all things. Then he indeed is the one true king. He is the one true king. And can I just say something? There is a very simple truth that we should hang on to right here. Very simple truth. Jesus is the one true king who is actually in control of all things. He alone deserves our trust. And here's the truth is that we live in an anxiety-induced society. Do you believe that? We live in a, con, uh, a culture that, that is consumed with anxiety. Because here, here's the way that, that we live often. That, that if, if my bank account is okay, then, then I'm good. Okay? If, if my health is okay, then, then I'm good. If everything is moving in the right direction according to my plan, then, then I am good but the problem is, is that our faith is shaken when our circumstances are turned upside down. When, when we live in a society now that knows about planes crashing into buildings, where terrorists terrorize, where, where cancer comes over your body, where your health deteriorates by the minute, where your relationships around you are not going according to plan, when your health is in desperate need of restoration, when your marriage is in desperate need of restoration, when your uh, relationships with your kids are in desperate need of restoration. We live in a culture that realizes these things. We misread the fine print. We messed up on our taxes and now we owe the IRS more than we planned. We mess up here. Now we have new news about a new cancer. We have new news about a new disease. We, have, we can't travel overseas because we're going to get Ebola. We're gonna, we can't do all these things. And we just live in a chaotic society that is consumed by fear and anxiety. Max Lucado says this. He says, he says, the presence of anxiety is inevitable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. You see, what, what we do is we imprison ourselves. We create a prison of anxiety because we misplace our trust. You see, anxiety is going to exist in your life. But the prison happens. You become imprisoned in fear and anxiety when you are no longer trusting in the one who is actually in control of all things. When we misplace our trust, when we, uh, at the moment that God is no longer what is driving our security, that God is no longer driving uh, what we think of as trustworthy, but what, what Jesus expresses and he makes sure is known in this very moment is that his disciples are going to know that he alone is the one who is in control. That's why Hebrews 1 says that, that Jesus, by the power of his word, is not just can create things, but he is sustaining all things at this very moment. And so when you are facing circumstances that are not according to your plan, when you are facing hardship, when you are battling cancer, when you are battling diseases, when your marriage is falling apart, your kids are walking away from Jesus and they're not choosing what is right, they're doing all of these things when your circumstance is not right in your mind that's where we have to press in to to remember that that is that is not our security that is not our fate but rather God alone Jesus alone is in control of our life this one true king is in control, but this one true king also gives a display of submission. This is number two. The one true king displays submission. And think with me for a moment. What, what, what Mark's record shows us is that this is a king who is riding in submission and humility. Okay, he is riding a donkey uh, of submission and humility. Here's why. During this time in the uh, Roman rule and Roman order, 
you would have leaders and generals who would come back and through the streets of Jerusalem after they have won a victory, they have won a battle, and they would ride through the streets in victory. People would be cheering for them. And the, the general would be, would be basically having all eyes on them. Look at what I have accomplished. Look what I have done. He has a sword in hand expressing power. He is, he is riding a white horse expressing prestige and no, uh, uh, nobility. He is, he is expressing these things. And the general would be dressed appropriately for the occasion and to show his might, to show how great of a leader he is. And Rome will continue because of what he has done. So they will ride through and look what I have accomplished. Look what I have done for you. And how stark of a contrast do we see with Jesus in his arrival? Jesus did not come from a battle that had been won for a temporal moment. But what but rather Jesus came to establish an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that would not be overran, a kingdom that has no boundaries, a kingdom that has no borders, a kingdom that will not be ruled by anyone other than the one true king. And this is what Jesus was doing. He's saying this is not a temporal battle that has been won, but this is an eternal fight that I have done and I'm doing on your behalf. See, what's interesting is that most of the time, generals would come through after a battle had already been fought. What Jesus does is he is riding before the battle has been fought. And he is expressing victory in this. He's saying, look, I know I haven't fought this battle yet, but guess what? It's over. I know that I haven't uh, really uh, began to fight this battle yet. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm heading that way. But guess what? Satan has no chance. Evil will have no victory. And church, remember, it is the same for you, for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the same for you. Evil will not rule over you. Sin will not reign over you. The final say belongs to the one true king, and that is Jesus that's who has the final say. Philippians 2 says this. Philippians 2 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, listen to this, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But rather, what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every Knees should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an act of submission to the will of the Father. This is what Jesus came to do. This is the true king. This is what King Jesus did on our behalf. He did this on your behalf and on my behalf. The fact that he would come through and fight a battle that you would never succeed in. But he did it on your behalf so that you may have victory in Christ Jesus. The king has come. But look in the way that he started this. The king has come to take his throne, but had committed himself to begin his reign from an unbroken cult headed toward a death on a cross. That's how his reign would begin. And this is what we see. Look at Mark chapter 11. Those who went before, those who followed, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And so this is what we're seeing. The, the one true king. This is the last point. This is number three. The one true king alone can save. 
This is what we see. The, the people in the streets, this is what they were crying out. It's fascinating to read this. They are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the words that they are saying are absolutely true. The words that they are saying from these pages, when you read it, they are absolutely true. Hosanna literally means save, I pray. And so they're saying, save, save us, save us, save us. This is what they are crying out to Jesus. And however, the words, though they are true of Jesus, could not have been more misunderstood by the people. You see, they are expressing from what they have seen in Psalm chapter 118 that says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. And they are asking for God to shine down upon them. This is drawn from Numbers chapter uh, 6, verses 24 through 27. He says, may Yahweh bless you. May Yahweh uh, protect you. May Yahweh look with favor on you. May Yahweh give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites, and I will bless them. You see, they are drawing from these passages, and they're saying, yeah, save us like that. Save us like that. Save us today. Save us now. Save us, I pray. And here's the truth. The prophecy that was given 500 years prior, it's being fulfilled in this moment. It's being fulfilled right now. The prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is being fulfilled right now. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, that is being fulfilled right now in this passage. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 is being fulfilled right now in this moment. Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34. And then Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, we see that this, these prophecies are being fulfilled, but not the people's expectations and how it would be done. The issue is not whether or not the prophecy is being fulfilled. The issue is that their expectations of how it would be done are not hanging in there. Their expectations were a little off because this is what they wanted. They wanted a political savior. The people are, are waiting in anticipation to overrule Rome. And they're saying, finally, finally, our king has come to overrule this political nightmare. Finally, our king has come who will be the military leader that we need. Finally, our king has come to fix our circumstance. Finally, the king has come. And they wanted this military leader. They wanted the political leader. But Jesus came to deliver the people of God from what they really needed. And that is a delivery from their sin. See, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came, remember this, to seek and save the lost. That is why Jesus came. He did not come for a temporal victory, for temporal praise. If it was only temporary, then this is not a God worth worshiping. But rather, this is a God worth worshiping because he did not come for a temporal battle to be won for temporal praise, but rather an eternal battle that he will hold in the palm of his hand for a people that do not deserve it, to give everlasting life to those who would believe in him. This is no coincidence. The fact that this is selection day for the lambs and an estimated Two and a half million people here gathered in the city of Jerusalem, selecting their Passover lamb to be slain. And here Jesus is right in front of them. They missed the real lamb. They missed the lamb that was right in front of them. It's worthy for us to ask, have you missed the same lamb? It's a worthy question. You see, oftentimes we, we come to Jesus for the things we want, but rarely do we accept him and trust in him for the thing that we actually need. This is a difficult truth. To be frustrated with your circumstances is common. This is what happened in Mark chapter 4. I mentioned this passage earlier, but, but here what is happening in Mark chapter 4 is that the disciples 
They're in the middle of a storm. And they think in this moment that they're about to die. They think in this moment that their life is over. Their circumstances speaking truth into their life. And here Jesus is, the stern of the boat, asleep. It's not crazy that Jesus is asleep. That's not what's crazy. What's strange is how frustrated the disciples get in this moment. When you read the text, you know what they say to Jesus? Here they are, the waves are coming over them. The sea is swallowing them. And they look at Jesus asleep. His kingship and authority is in question in this moment. And, and they, they go to wake him. They're shaking him to wake him. And they, and they say this. They say, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? How many times in your life has your circumstance caused you to believe that Jesus is just sleeping on the job? He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care that you're suffering. He doesn't care that you're walking through pain. He doesn't care that, about your circumstance. How many times have we been frustrated with the response of Jesus? When we're begging for God to move. Like sincerely, like we're, we're asking Jesus, would you heal this person? We're asking Jesus, will you, will you show up for this financial mess that I'm in? Will you show up in this moment? I, I need you. And all we hear is silence. We have to relate a little bit to the disciples. When they look at Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat and think, how can you be so careless about my circumstance? You see, this is authentic, right? And they're just waiting. Like, Jesus, honestly, do you not care about what I'm walking through? Do you not care about what I'm dealing with? And I want to remind you that Jesus cares about your circumstance. Jesus is a loving God. He cares about his people. The problem is when he doesn't respond in the way that we think is best, but his ways are greater than our ways. His knowledge is higher than ours. And we're called to trust in that because he alone is the one true king. Your circumstance does not change the authority of Jesus. And when you have the perspective that this Jesus is still in charge, this Jesus is still on the throne, you can recognize, just as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, in the, in the political decay of Isaiah's time, the king Uzziah had perished. He is dead. And no one knows what's going to happen to Israel at this moment. Nobody knows what's going to happen to the people. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, you know what he saw? He saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne. Aren't you grateful that we serve a God, that the circumstance of your life doesn't change who occupies the throne? And the fact that we can rest in that. The fact that we can have peace in that. And that's why in Mark chapter 4, in the frustration of the disciples, when they say, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? He wakes up, he rises up, and he sticks his hand out across the sea that is raging around them. And he says, peace be still. Don't you want peace in your life? He says, peace be still. And they were astonished. They're saying, who, who would obey how is it that the, that the seas would even obey the voice of this man? 
is because he is the one true king who is in control. His timing is perfect for your life. It is not a coincidence. It is not by chance the circumstance that you are walking through and dealing with. But what we learn from Jesus is that we are to submit as we trust in him. And so this is what I want you to do. This, I just want you to just close your eyes and just bow your head just for a moment. And, and I want you to think, they, the people were crying out for salvation. They were crying out for salvation on that day. Now, they didn't understand exactly what they needed saving from. But, but now we know. We are in a great need of being saved from our unrighteousness. The Bible teaches us, it says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become and have the righteousness of God. This is the beginning of Passion Week. Jesus is walking and he is parading toward the moment of all fulfill fulfillment that, that you may have righteousness before a holy God. Have you trusted in Jesus for that? Have you trusted from, for Jesus to cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that you may stand before a holy God and be seen as clean and pure and righteous before him? John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation and no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to the people and we must be saved by it. We can't miss the perfect lamb that is in front of us right now. And so this is what I'm going to do. If you have never trusted in that lamb, we're going to have men and women up front, you come forward and you say, I need to trust in Jesus for my salvation. Maybe others of you in this room, you're just dealing with the circumstance of your life and you just are having a hard time trusting God. Matthew tells us, bring those burdens to Jesus Lay, him, lay them at the feet of Jesus and trust him with it. Heavenly Father, we are asking, God, that during this time, Father, that you would help us to see our need for the one true king. God, that you would help us understand our need for the one true king. God, that you would help us understand that we can cast our burdens before you, that we can lay our burdens at the feet of Jesus because at no other name will be greater than the name of Jesus. And so, Father, in this moment, we praise you. God, that you would look out across us and see a broken people and yet while we were sinners it is when you went and died for us so that we might have been cleansed and have the righteousness of Jesus and so father will you speak to us now in Jesus name amen as you look up I'm going to ask that you stand up